This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security for January 25th, 2019. In this week's episode, Google plans to block some ad blockers on Chrome, Apple releases a ton of security updates, a new law in Australia could have a global impact on phone security, and we'll look at the biggest data dump ever. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software, exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern, and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Josh, it turns out that last week you made a small mistake. And since in the interest of full disclosure, we want to be totally honest with our listeners when we make mistakes, I'll let you correct yourself. Oh, thank you, Kirk. Yes. So last week I mentioned as we were talking about Face ID and how way back in November 2017, there were some Vietnamese researchers who uh, developed a mask that would allow them to bypass Face ID. And that only works with the iPhone 10. We now know that Apple has made some changes in the 10s and 10s Max. And I, I said way back in November 2017, before we started recording the podcast, and I wasn't sure that that was right. And I and I looked it up afterward, and I was like, no, no, we recorded our first episode at the beginning of October 2017. So. Uh, we we may not have mentioned that particular news story on the show, but we actually have had our show around a little bit longer than I remembered at the time. And it's just a minor correction, and I wasn't intending to shame you, but you had put in our draft show notes that you wanted to mention that you needed to correct yourself. Yep. Um, I wanted to bring up something else that isn't actually a correction, but the story we talked about last week has turned up with some more interesting information it's not necessarily related to what we spoke about last week. It seems to be an extension of it. It's not really clear. So last week we were talking about how Google was going to start blocking certain types of ads in its Chrome web browser. And naturally this was a good thing for Google because they would be uh, blocking the ads that aren't Google ads. And this has to do with something called the Coalition for Better Ads, um, blocking the really disruptive ads, the pop-ups, the animated ones, the things that, you know, get in the way that, that prevents you from reading articles. And as we said, well, it's kind of convenient that Google doesn't do this kind of ad, so their ads won't be blocked. But they've decided now to block ad blockers in Chrome. So these are the extensions that we use in different browsers to block ads, including Google's ads. Yes. Well, at least they're blocking some ad blockers because... The ad blocker that I'm using in Chrome is uBlock Origin. And uBlock Origin is an extension that currently works just fine in current versions of Chrome, but the way so there's some back-end things that are changing in the way that Chrome handles extensions that are going to prevent extensions from doing certain things that they can do now, that they have the ability to do now. And ostensibly, this is something that Google is doing for people's safety because they don't want extensions to be able to do things that they shouldn't have access to do, things that could be used to spy on you and things like that. Well, these extensions can also do things like blocking ad content and so forth. So would you call this a sort of sandboxing, which we've discussed many times, that ensures that in an operating system like macOS or iOS, certain apps can't get access to data that doesn't belong to them? Yeah, and in a, in a sense, I guess it is a bit like that. There is, essentially, they're just kind of 
changing the ways that extensions are allowed to interact with the web pages that you visit and reducing certain functionality. So yeah, you could look at it sort of like a, a sandbox. And so essentially what they're doing here, um, according to this article that we found on the register, um, they're talking about how certain ad blockers like Adblock Plus will still work just fine. Now, Adblock Plus, hmm. <laughs> there's something kind of interesting about Adblock Plus. Google actually pays Adblock Plus to not block Google Ads. It's kind of paradoxical that you install an ad blocker in your browser and it's not blocking certain ads because the ad provider has paid <laughs> to be whitelisted. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it's a little bit strange how how Google treats the whole concept of ad blocking, but well, it's no, it's not strange. It's their bottom line that's affected. This is how they make pretty much all their money. Right. So anytime ads get blocked, they make less money. True. Yeah. I mean, it's strange from the perspective of a consumer who doesn't really understand Google's business model. And I think probably the average person doesn't really sit and think like, so how does this company make money? You know, they just know, oh, I go to Google every time I want to find an answer to something. And so they've got all the answers. They offer all these things for free and they're great, right? Well, nothing really comes for free. There's always something behind there if someone's offering you something for free and if you can't find a single thing that a company is actually selling well then they're probably selling your data and and that's or, or selling ads to you or things like that selling data is something we'll get to a little bit later in the show so w when we talk about the chrome browser chrome is based on an open source framework chromium right and Chromium is also used for Microsoft Edge. So this won't only affect Google's Chrome browser, it will also affect Microsoft Edge. Yes, it's true that Microsoft Edge will soon be based on, on Chromium. They're, they're making some changes there uh, to the, the rendering engine that they use. So e each of these different browsers has sort of a, an underlying engine you know, or framework for rendering web pages to, to make them look in a, in a particular way, display this a certain way. And so Microsoft Edge is rumored to be switching to, to Chromium. Right. And on Apple uh, operating systems, we've mentioned many times that WebKit is the underlining framework. It's used for web browsers. It's used for iTunes store pages. It's used to display HTML and mail. Um, it's used for some other interesting things, like the sidebar in the Finder is rendered by WebKit. The sidebar in iTunes and, and Mail, they're all rendered by WebKit. That's why you can go into System Preferences General on a Mac, and you can change the size of the sidebar, and it will affect all these apps that use the, the WebKit sidebar. And most people don't realize that a lot of what you see on your Mac is based on a browser rendering framework. Right. So are you going to change Adblocker? Because if your Adblocker uBlock Origin isn't uh, available anymore, what will you do? Well, um, I, I guess it, it depends. Um, if uBlock Origin decides to change the way that they do ad blocking in Chrome, then, uh, then I would stick with uBlock Origin. Um, you know, I have used AdBlock Plus in the past. I suppose if that's my best option on Chrome, I probably would switch back to that. Um, you know, it is interesting to note, too, that Firefox actually made some changes to the way that they do extensions last year. And uh, one of the extensions that I use now, I'm an Uber geek. Okay. When it comes to things like this. Yes. So I use uh, an extension on Firefox called NoScript. 
and basically it blocks all active content. It blocks JavaScript. Basically, pages do not work. <laughs> Most pages on the web don't work without JavaScript and all of these other things that are part of a web page. It must be a lot of fun being Java. <laughs> well, but see, that's how they get you. Because <laughs> yeah. if you've got JavaScript running on every web page and it's loading JavaScript from every other web page, because a web page is not just self-contained. If you go to any website, it's pulling content from lots of other sites, lots of other domains on the internet. So, you know, it's important, I guess, to realize that. And uh, so I, I use NoScript in Firefox. I didn't like the way that they changed this, uh, changed extensions around. In order for NoScript to continue to work in Firefox, they actually had to completely redesign the extension to the point where I just didn't really like the way that it worked anymore. And so uh, I mentioned on a recent episode that I use um, a Mac browser called Waterfox, <laughs> which is a fork of Firefox. So th there's another developer that took takes the Firefox code base and then makes a modified version of Firefox that uh, is allowed to still use the old style extensions so that I can continue using my proper version of NoScript. Right, because the Mozilla code base is open source and anyone can take that and build on it to make their own browser. Exactly. This gets really complicated. What kind of car do you drive, Josh? <laughs> Have you built your own car as well? No, I haven't built my own car. But as we talked about, I am building my own uh, computer, which may or may not run That's Mac right. OS. Right. And when we get finished, we're going to talk about that on the show. Because as I mentioned in the past, I went through the experience and it wasn't very positive. Yeah. Um, speaking of Mac OS, Apple updated all the things again this week, didn't they? Yes, this was a, a big week in terms of Apple security updates. Um, all of their operating systems, uh, Mac OS, iOS, TV OS, watch OS, um, all got updates. HomePod OS. Yeah, yeah, even the HomePod. Well, the most serious vulnerability, that, and, and of course, when, when we talk about security updates on this show, um, you know, Apple releases updates all the time. They're not necessarily always security updates, but usually rolled into these you know, new versions of iOS and macOS, there are some security updates involved. And so whenever there are, especially if they're interesting, then we'll talk about them on the show. And it's important to mention that a lot of the security updates that affect one of Apple's operating systems also affect the others. Uh, we were mentioning WebKit earlier. WebKit works on the Mac, it works on iOS, it works on the watch, and it works on tvOS. Right, exactly. So this is that's an example of something where if there's a bug, a security vulnerability, it's got to be fixed not just on one platform, but on all of Apple's platforms. And, and we definitely see some overlap between some of these uh, vulnerabilities that were found. Um, the most serious vulnerability is one where there's a there's a remote code execution vulnerability, which sounds scary because it actually kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> the The idea behind this is that an attacker can do something to your Apple device without even being near you. So they can send, for example, uh, one thing that we've seen in the past is uh, iMessages that contain a particular character string that causes a problem and can cause your device to crash or maybe even in some cases um, to have security issues beyond just crashing. And so the, the most serious vulnerability this time is a remote code execution, not in iMessage, but in FaceTime. An attacker can trigger a malicious FaceTime call and 
interestingly, this bug is fixed in iOS, macOS. Okay, well, those two make sense. Watch OS. Okay, I, I, I guess that's true. You can answer a FaceTime call on your watch. And then yeah. they also list the same bug as existing in tvOS. They patched it in tvOS, which is kind of funny because officially there is no way to do FaceTime on a television. You can mirror your phone or your iPad. Yet. 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 <laughs> Yet. The code is there. Now, you would have to have a camera in the television to do a FaceTime video call, but if you have an Apple TV and you use the Siri remote, you could talk into that theoretically. Yeah, and in fact, I wonder if this is one of the reasons why there, for years, have perpetuated rumors of Apple's eventually going to come out with their own actual TV that's going to be an Apple TV. Uh, maybe that's why, because even as far back as 2010, there were already hints that FaceTime was coming to the Apple TV because they started including this FaceTime framework in the Apple TV software, um, which at the time wasn't called tvOS, by the way. That's a that's a relatively recent thing that Apple started doing just to keep all the names in sync. You've got iOS, macOS, watchOS, tvOS, and now there's, what's the one for HomePod? Audio OS. Audio OS. That's hard to say, audio OS. Yeah. Yeah. But now, if Apple did make a TV and wanted to allow FaceTime to work with video, it would have to have a camera in it. Right. And I know you would get your gaffer tape out immediately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My my black electrical tape so that it, it uh, matches pretty well <laughs> with the background. Yeah. The, the idea of having a camera in the living room is a bit creepy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not as bad as having a camera in your bedroom, though. I mean... Okay, we're not we're not into relative creepiness, but that the, that Facebook thing certainly rates pretty. That's a that's a ten out of ten on the creepiness scale, I think. Yeah, um, a Apple is a little bit less creepy. Speaking of creepiness, someone came out with a really interesting device that can kind of scramble and block the Amazon Echo and the Google Home from listening to you. Oh yeah, this is kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> it's described in the article as a teachable parasite. Uh, this is an article from TechCrunch, and it, it actually kind of looks like a parasite. There's this weird, ugly, blobby, parasitic-looking thing that you can stick on top of your Google Home or your Amazon Echo, and basically... It looks like slime mold growing on top of the device. Yeah, it's really awful. I don't know why anyone would want to buy something like this from an aesthetic point of view. It's just hideous. But uh, th basically, the idea behind this thing is that... You can say a different wake word now it, because, you know, for example, the, the Amazon Echo does not, uh, is not terribly customizable. They give you a few different options on what you can say to wake it up and activate it, but um, you don't have a lot of control beyond that. And so you can have a custom wake word and whenever you're not speaking that your custom wake word it's sort it's doing this sort of weird thing where it's it's constantly sort of jamming you know putting weird noise into your device to make sure it can't spy it's on whispering you. into your device <laughs> yeah it's whispering into the device and so the device picks up that voice instead of yours it it i guess it also isolates the microphone on the device so it can't hear you speaking outside of it Right. Um, uh, worth noting that you can't do this on the HomePod because the HomePod's microphones are on the side. There's a number of microphones, whereas for these two devices, the microphone's on the top and you can just cover it. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah, I, I'm not really sure about the utility of this product though, because so well, if, first of all, it's something that you can create yourself. It's uh, you you 3D print this blobby, ugly, weird shell that goes on the top, and you've got to have a Raspberry Pi. Which, um, if you haven't heard of that, it's something that geeks use to try to <laughs> kind of create a little mini computer that can do specialized tasks. Um, and you stick all a Raspberry Pi is very small. It's about the size of a deck of cards. And the, the one of the most recent ones I saw can do 4K video. Um, it's got fast Wi-Fi. It's got a pretty decent processor. Um, but yeah, that's that's a geeky it's thing a for weekend projects. Very very geeky thing. But if if yeah. you're geek enough, you could build this thing. There's uh, information on how you can 3D print your <laughs> your strange teachable parasite thing. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about that data broker issue that you foreshadowed and a little bit more about some really huge data breaches. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Indigo's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software. That includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save 50%. That's Intego Podcast to save 50% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. So before the break, you were mentioning something about data brokers. And last week, Tim Cook penned an op-ed in Time Magazine uh, saying, you deserve privacy online. Here's how you could actually get it. Now, let's point out that Apple is playing their privacy card as a differentiator. Uh, we just talked about how Google is using their power to block everyone else's ad. Um, Apple is taking the opposite tack and saying, we don't care about your data. And, and Apple said this for years. Cook is suggesting something similar to the GDPR here in Europe. And we discussed that uh, last year in an episode. What are the main points that uh, Tim Cook has mentioned in this article? Well, essentially, he's talking about how the U.S. Congress really needs to, in his opinion, pass comprehensive federal privacy legislation. Um, and I think the really key point that he, he brings up is this. He says, we believe the Federal Trade Commission should establish a data broker clearinghouse requiring all data brokers, meaning companies that you know collect all of this information about you, to register, enabling consumers to track the transactions that have bundled and sold their data from place to place, and giving users the power to delete their data on demand freely, easily, and online once and for all. So that's kind of his main statement there. One way to look at this, the metaphor might be that this is 
something similar to credit bureaus where they take your credit history and you can access the history and you can contest some of it if it's wrong, even though from what I've heard, it's not a very simple process to do that. Um, but I think that would be a good metaphor for people to understand this, that there is a way of all this data being organized and that there should be ways that people can get rid of it. Now, of course, with GDPR here in Europe, the framework already exists. The main concept already exists. And the U.S. could actually just make their own GDPR. They don't have to invent very much. Yeah. And so one of the things that's interesting about GDPR is that uh, a lot of companies have already started to take some of the things that they needed to implement for uh, for the European Union and, and start applying them outside, you know, to to just in general. So, for example, one of the things that we've seen some companies start to do is to provide access to download your data, um, regardless of whether you're in Europe or not. So, uh, right. So Apple launched that in Europe initially, and then a few months later, they launched that in the U.S. And I'm not sure if it's available worldwide, but you can do it in the U.S. now as well. Right. And, and I guess they figured we've we've implemented this for some of our customers. Let's implement it for everyone because it won't really cost that much more, and it'll it'll look good for a company to do this. Right. And I think for some smaller companies, it just makes sense to to apply these changes across the board anyway, because, you know, there are some issues or challenges, I guess I should say, with making sure that you're applying these things to people who are currently in Europe or who live in Europe. You know, it it can get kind of complicated because people travel internationally and technically GDPR also applies to people who are visiting Europe and not just people who live there. So um, it, it becomes very complicated if you really try to break all that out. So a lot of companies are just in general making some of these changes universal across their entire product or service offering. So Tim Cook is playing the Apple card in the fact that Apple has long um, expressed their desire to keep personal data private. And they're assuming that maybe this will get more people to move to the Apple platform? I, I guess. I mean, I think, you know, it's really easy to look at something like this. I mean, Tim Cook, is he's a very passionate person. He When he feels strongly about something, um, he doesn't hold back. I mean, he'll, he wants to let people know that he feels strongly about something. And so, uh, you know, and you could look at this article and you could say, well, this is Tim Cook, you know, talking about his personal platform. You could also look at this article and say, well, yes, but he's also the CEO of Apple. And so, you know, this, this also helps to establish the Apple brand as, you know, the privacy advocates and so forth. Um, I think it's a little of each. Um, I, I, I mean, I definitely don't think that Tim Cook would just be saying this because he wants to make Apple look better. I mean, I think he genuinely believes that that. No, Apple has been uh, Apple has been walking this walk for many years. Yeah. Um, so this is just a culmination of what they've been doing. And it's true that, you know, with all these uh, data breaches we'll talk about in a second um, and all these issues with Facebook and Twitter and everything. It's a good time for Apple to come out and be more vocal about this. And let's point out, it's very rare for Tim Cook to pen an op-ed or write an open letter. You know, we saw Steve Jobs do it a couple of times. Um, One of the most important ones was when he uh, told the music industry that they needed to get rid of DRM. I believe this is back in 2004. And this was the game changer that got rid of DRM on 
downloaded music. That's right. Yeah, I also remember that Steve Jobs wrote a piece about Flash and how it needed to die and be gone forever. Yes. And now, interestingly, yes. it's pretty much um, all but gone at this point. Gone. Um, it still yeah. kind of exists, but even Adobe has finally decided, yeah, okay, we're going to uh, turn the lights out on that product soon. Poor Adobe. <laughs> Um, in, in other somewhat related news, um, a, a new law in Australia is going to give law enforcement authorities the power to compel companies like Apple to create tools that would circumvent the encryption built into their products. And we've talked about this several times, um, in particular about the case with the um, was it San Bernardino shooter and the FBI wanted Apple to crack the phone and they said, we can't do that. And there was a bit of murmuring in Congress in the U.S. about forcing Apple to create backdoors. Um, this this kind of suggests that, well, A, they don't understand encryption and they don't understand what backdoors are. But if if but if Australia actually enforces this, I, I would think that Apple would just stop selling their iPhones in Australia. Yeah, I, I was sort of wondering that as well. Um, and by the way, so this law actually already is in effect in Australia. Um, as far as I know, nobody's actually... Uh, you, you know, nobody in the law enforcement in Australia has already started to use this against any companies, not that we know of. Um, but this is something that, um, you know, has really far reaching implications. Quoting from the New York Times, a new law in Australia gives law enforcement authorities the power to compel tech industry giants like Apple to create tools that would circumvent the encryption built into their products. Now that's interesting because that has was kind of one of Apple's excuses before. I mean, and when I say excuses, I, I actually agree with Apple on this. I don't think that a company should be compelled to spend their money to develop a feature that is not so much a feature as it is a vulnerability to basically create holes in their product just to make sure that somebody else can have a backdoor. Um, I think the idea behind that is just um, a very, a very strange and wrong way to think about how development of products works. Well, it's also a lack of understanding of encryption, as I said earlier. Um, you know, on my iPhone, I can open an app and use Face ID to authenticate and go check my bank account and move money around. I can pay using Apple Pay. And all of this because there's encryption. Now, if there was a back door that allowed people to get into devices and I lost my iPhone, I would no longer trust the operating system to have my credit cards, to have my bank information on my phone. And that would be a problem for business in general because we've discussed it many times. You can't use the Internet without encryption. You can't use the Web without encryption to send your password securely to a website, etc., so I, I think the problem is politicians who don't understand technology very well. Right. Um, we'll see what happens. I, I would almost expect Apple to say, well, you know what? We just won't sell iPhones here. Um, well, yeah. I feel bad for my Australian friends, but what, what other choice would they have? If, if it, I, I think that if it came down to Apple being forced to include a backdoor in, uh, I mean, you know, I, how how could Apple do this? I mean, how could they include a backdoor just for only uh, people who buy the phone in Australia? Well, that's not going to work because then people in Australia will just buy their iPhone from some other country. So you can't you can't you can't really play a game here 
and, um, you know, just to appease a certain government and not have major flaws in your product that are going to, you know, affect people in other countries too. And that's why laws like this, um, again, are, I think, very misguided because, you know, as you said, people who are making these decisions don't really understand how security works. And they don't understand that it means that if a backdoor were to be put into this product, that guess what? Now the people who put this law in place in Australia have major vulnerabilities on their phones or their other devices as well. So it's it's sort of crazy, you know, but it, unfortunately, that's the world that we're living in today where... <laughs> These people haven't seen the latest Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there's always something like that, someone hacking there's, into something or Homeland or any of these things. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, you know, there are ways that you can break into devices. As we talked about, you know, there's Celebrite. That was the reason that Apple was kind of, uh, the FBI stopped pushing on Apple to build a backdoor back in, in the, uh, the San Bernardino shooting case. Uh, it was an issue where, um, you know, it just became a non-issue because the FBI found some other way to get into the device. They said, "Oh, well, we found. A, never mind. We, we, we we're good now," <laughs> because they went to Celebrite, and Celebrite had a way to to break into the device. So there will always be ways to break into a device. Um, and basically, the way that those methods work is they're exploiting a vulnerability that Apple hasn't patched yet. So as long as there's some company that stays ahead of the game and it is a cat and mouse game, then, um, you know, I don't, I don't see what the reason for this is, um, for, for a law like this, because, you know, Australian law enforcement could just as easily go to celebrate or they could get uh, a gray key, you know, and have their law enforcement agents break into a device, you know, using the brute force method. So, so, in other news, collection number one, it sounds like a Beatles song, <laughs> collection number two, three, four, five, these are the latest massive password dumps. You wrote about this on the Intego Max Security blog. We talk about these password, these data breaches um, pretty often, but this one is just humong- 2.7 billion total records. 773 million unique email addresses. Now you think about it, how many websites have you ever logged into? Hundreds, right? So your email address is on hundreds of websites. But here, 773 million is only, what, a fourth of 2.7 billion. Um, What do we know about this? This is scary. I mean, they're all scary, but this is the biggest one ever, I think. Yeah, and yeah, by by some metrics, uh, this this is the biggest data dump ever. And what's kind of interesting about this is that it's not just collection number one. As you mentioned, there's also collection number two through five, and then there's a couple of other uh, big dumps that uh, came out around the same time. So um, there's an article on the Intego Max Security blog where you can find out some more of these details. But um, yeah. It, it, the other interesting thing here, so there's 773 million unique email addresses. So there's a pretty good chance that your email, one of your email addresses, if you have multiple, is in one of these dumps. Um, and it's really easy to find out whether that's the case. Um, we'll have a link in the show notes to a site called Have I Been Pwned um, or Owned. You could pronounce it that way. Um, basically it's, uh, it's a site where, where you can punch in your email address and it will tell you what data breaches or dumps your 
uh, your email address has ever shown up in. Right. The people who run the sites have collected this data over the years and dumped it into a big database. They don't have the passwords. They only have the email addresses. So you can find that your email address was in a database with Adobe, with Microsoft, with, uh, you know, Lyft and Uber and uh, all sorts of companies like that. Right. Um, and not that I'm calling out specific companies, but I know that when I search for mine, I have seen Adobe and Microsoft. I don't use Lyft or Uber, but you know, all of these things where you, you have a username and a password, um, you will find that they're all, they've all leaked at some point. Right. And I think it's interesting to note too, that there's 21 million unique plain text passwords here in, in this dump. So 21 million passwords, um, and the reason why that number differs so much, by the way, it's yes, people do reuse passwords across multiple sites, which of course we strongly recommend that you do not do. It's very important as I think this shows that you should have a unique password for every site or service that you use. Because if one of these companies, any one of the services or sites that you've signed up for gets breached, now if that password becomes public knowledge, someone can actually use a credential stuffing attack which means that they're basically trying an email address or username and a password from past dump and trying to use that same email address and password to sign in on some other site. With the assumption that if you've reused your password um, on for your Apple ID and Amazon and your bank and everything else. Right. And a lot of times these attacks are very successful because, you know, so maybe the company that got breached, maybe they forced you to reset your password. But if you're using that password somewhere else, uh, well, you know, those sites weren't breached, so they're not going to let you know that you need to reset your password. So this is just something that you should know, and a lot of people don't really know. So you also wrote another article for the Intego Mac Security blog called How to Avoid Getting Hacked After Data Breaches. And you you explain what you've just talked about here, and you give some tips. Um, use a unique password for everything. Use a strong password. Use a password manager. I don't know how many times we've said that. If we had a buck for every time we've said that, <laughs> I could probably buy another iPhone. <laughs> um, set up multi-factor authentication or two-step verification. And the fifth one is interesting, and I don't think we've talked about this much. Don't answer security questions with real answers. So what was the name of your first pet? Well, don't ever say that because you've probably posted a picture on Facebook with the name of your first pet in the post. Or who was your favorite teacher in school? What's your favorite sports team? And that's, the, that's really the most ridiculous in my opinion because if you have a favorite sports team, um, you certainly let everyone know on Twitter and Facebook and every other social media network. Right. So I, I think the best advice that I can give on this is use your password manager to put the fake answers that you've put into the, for these security questions. In fact, what you want, what you may want to do is to even come up with a completely random password and then just record that in your in your password manager as the answer to these security questions. So you have uh, you just, so you don't really have a backdoor or some way that someone can sneak into your accounts just if they happen to know you well enough or can find things about you online. I'm going to link to an article I wrote last year on the Intego Max Security blog where I put a YouTube clip of a movie called Now You See Me, I think it was called. And you see, it was this group of magicians, and you see them, they're in a private jet with Michael Caine, and they're asking him, they're just messing around, oh, yeah, and, and, and your uncle did this, and oh, my uncle did that, and, and what was your favorite color, whatever. And then they end up using all these security questions to fleece his bank account. Um, it wouldn't work exactly like that, but I, I think the 
the, the way that they presented it makes you think a little bit more carefully about how easily someone can raise that kind of question. Um, hey, what was the first concert you ever saw? That's a question that Apple includes in their security questions. And, you know, Apple gives you about, what, a half a dozen, maybe eight questions that you can choose from. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have told friends what the first concert they saw was. Right. Okay, that's enough for this week. We're going to take a break, and we'll get back to you next week with more. Josh, until then, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com.